You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today in my guest chair, I have none other than Mr. Michael Fosberg. He's the author of Nobody Wants to Talk About It. He is a Difficult Conversations champion and an inclusion and engagement leader. His story is amazing. And in a moment, you're going to see why. He has delivered presentations and trainings for so many organizations. You'll have to read his bio to find out more. He's written a play called Incognito that chronicles his journey on embracing his Black identity after being raised white and learning about his history in his 30s. Mr. Michael Fosberg, welcome to Bridge to You. Thank you, Monique. It's so good to be with you and good to be with your listeners. Yes. So let's go right in. I always like to ask my guests if they could be anywhere in the world, where would they choose to be and why? You, you warned me this was coming and I'm sort of laughing because I, I've had, this is a strange fixation, but I have wanted to live overseas for a very, very long time. And it's been a dream of mine and my wife's to do so. And uh, we have sort of narrowed it down, I think, to Portugal. Weirdly enough, I don't have any connection to Portugal other than I've been there several times. And it is a beautiful country. And it is beautiful people who are so, they're so inclusive. They feel, you feel so welcome there. Many Portuguese speak English. They make um, foreigners, <laughs> Americans feel welcome. And so <laughs> the answer to the question is somewhere in Portugal, enjoying the history and the beauty of that country. Man, I have never been to Portugal, but listening to you, you make me want to book a flight and go there. And I find it so amazing that you use the word inclusive. So tell me about an experience when you visited and you actually felt included. Well, it's a long story, so I'm going to try to shorten it for you a little bit. I had been traveling throughout uh, Spain and Portugal for like about six weeks. This was, well, I don't even know how long ago. It must have been 12 years ago. My um, brother actually lives in Spain. He lives in uh, uh, the southernmost tip of Spain, a little town called Tarifa. And he was having a son, his first son, first and only. And I happened to be there for just after the birth and to be traveling through Spain around there. And my mom was there as well. And as I was traveling throughout Spain, I kept running into the Alabama Gospel Choir. They were performing at all these places in Spain. 
that I no was visiting. It was so crazy, right? That I'm like, oh my gosh, this is great. And so I was in Barcelona and I thought, I'm going to try to go see them. And so I went and got a ticket and it was this amazingly beautiful theater and they were incredible. You know, the Alabama gospel choir, they were rocking it, just, just really ripping it out. And what was so amazing to me was like, this is the difference between a Spanish audience and like perhaps an American audience, because there wasn't any call and response going on during the show. And I'm sitting there going, I'm wanting to, yeah, you know, tell it, brother, tell it, sister, sing it, let's hear it. And, and yet there was none of that going on. It was a huge theater. <laughs> and I felt so like, well, if I said something, first of all, I'd have to speak in English and they wouldn't understand me. Some of them might, but also I look white. And so I'm not sure how that would have confused some of the Spanish people. Anyway, I had a great time. I met several of the singers afterwards. They were signing autographs and books, selling books. And I talked to them and, you know, and another American, they were so pleased to see me. Anyway, I'm on my journey going through Spain again. I, I go down to meet my brother, get my mother. We decide we're going to go to Lisbon. We'd never been before. So we drive to Lisbon. It's about five and a half hours from my brother's house. We get there. We're walking around and meeting people. And they're so friendly. All of these Portuguese people are so friendly, so nice. And someone said something about, oh, there's some other Americans here in town or something like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they pointed over to the theater. The Alabama Gospel Choir was at the theater. And I walked by and I heard some people talking and I looked over and it was some of the members of the choir and I ended up re-meeting them again, connecting with them again there in Lisbon. And that was just such a, you know, serendipitous uh, experience, but also one of welcoming and feeling included. So I love that. I love that. So you got there and you, you connected with what was familiar and exciting and even the locals pointed you to what was familiar so you wouldn't feel too much out of place right right right. okay so I know that you have written this amazing and incredible play incognito and that definition is about like with the real identity or a hidden or unknown right I've heard you talk about this um, and the reason for choosing this play but a lot of my guests don't know this story and this background about what you have experienced. So can you tell us what was the impetus for this play? So yes, the, the impetus for the, the play, the journey, it's an autobiographical play that I actually then first started out writing the book called Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. It didn't become a book until after I'd been performing the play for about 10 years, but the play is basically my journey to find my biological father. I was raised by my biological mother who was of Armenian descent and an adoptive uh, stepfather who was of Swedish descent. I don't have any memory of um, my biological father. My mother um, left him when I was just a little over two years old. She went, moved back from Boston to live with her parents just outside of Chicago, north of Chicago in the suburbs. And then she remarried when I was about five years old. They had two kids. We grew up. Everything was fine. And then one day, my parents, when I was in my early 30s, they announced they were getting a divorce. And I realized when they said that, that I didn't know who my biological father was. My mother had never told me anything. And I never asked any questions, mostly because I was kind of a scared kid. I was always afraid of things. And frankly, by the time you know my mom remarried, I was five. 
I mean, it wasn't until then I was starting to really form like ideas and thoughts and putting things together. And so they decided they were getting a divorce and it just really shook me because I didn't know who my biological father was. So I asked my mom a bunch of questions and she gave me a couple of answers. Um, I, you know, his name was John Sidney Woods. And the last time she had talked to him was some 30 years prior. And she thought that he lived maybe in the Detroit area. She wasn't sure. She didn't know. And so that was kind of it, really. And so armed with that information, I went to the library. This is before the internet. <laughs> I used the internet to find everybody. I went to the library. Libraries used to have, I don't know if they still do. They had phone books. Remember phone books? Oh. You know, phone book section. And, and, and so I went to the library in Santa Monica, California. I was living in Santa Monica, California. And I got the Detroit phone book thinking, what are the chances that after 30 years, my father could still live in Detroit? I knew his name. So I looked up John Sidney Woods in the Detroit phone book. There were about five or six listings. I copied them all down. I raced back to my apartment, which was about the size of, of, of this computer screen. It was so tiny. I paced back and forth, not knowing what to do, thinking, what do I ask? What happens? What, you know, what, what if none of these names are my father? I finally got the courage. I picked up the phone. I dialed the first number on the list. Turned out to be my father. Wow. And I was like, absolutely shocked. And so we're, we're trying to, you know, like sort out, like, how, what do we say? How do we talk about each other? What do we say? What, what happened? What have, how have you been? All these things. And then suddenly out of the blue, he says to me, you know, son, and that just stopped me in my tracks when he said the word son. Oh. He said, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I thought, okay, okay. Like what? I mean, what could it be? And he said, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you thought happened or what you were told, I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. Mm. And I was just, I mean, beside myself, I was just so elated. My father telling me for the first time that I could remember that he loved me. And then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. and I remember, as I mentioned, I was living in a one-room apartment, and I had this full-length mirror sort of across the room from me, and I remember sort of catching a glimpse of myself in the mirror thinking, wow, did I just change? What, like, looking for signs, like, thinking about all this, and then he proceeded to tell me about my family history, about my great-great-grandfather, who was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War, my great-grandfather, who was a, a member of the Negro Leagues, who was an all-star pitcher, my grandfather, who was a genius, and the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are named after him. And after all that, I was like, hold on, can we just stop for a second here? Like, <laughs> what just happened? And that's how my whole life just unfolded on that day. Oh, and that's man. what the play and the story is all about. Wow, that is so incredible. It's so amazing. And I cannot imagine the feeling that must have been going through you first, not, not even just finding him on the first try, talk <laughs> about divine, but to be welcomed with such a warm embrace. Son, I love you. Yes. You know, and I, I feel like especially 
um, for men that have not had a chance to reconnect with their fathers. I mean, what, what was the impact? I can relate a little bit to this because I met my biological dad at eight, um, but it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I first heard, I love you. And as a grown woman, you don't know you're missing it until you get it, you know? What did it feel like when you heard that and when you received that type of embrace? Really, Monique, it took my breath away. I, it just took my breath away. I felt... I am, it was just like all this time, not knowing all my life, I had felt different from the family that I grew up with. I mean, I knew I was one of them. I knew, you know, that that was my mom. And, you know, even though he was my stepdad, I didn't call him my stepdad. He got married to my mom when I was five. He raised me. We didn't have much of a close relationship growing up. Um, but that's, there's a lot of factors involved with that. I had a brother and a sister. Now, technically, I guess they're half brothers and half sister, but I didn't call them that. I was raised with them, but I looked different from them. I had this wild, curly, uncombable hair. Some people know what I'm talking about. Couldn't get a brush through it. Couldn't get a comb through it. Used to complain to my mom. All I hated my hair in school. I, I complained to my mom all the time. Like, why, how do I have this hair? Nobody else has this hair. Why do I have this hair? One day I remember she finally said, well, I think, I think my father had hair like that. And you're like, your, she's your grandfather. I said, your father, he's bald. I don't know how you could have had hair like this, you know? And so all of this came into focus when my father said, you know, what he was, who he was, what I was, the word son. And I realized that I had always had this deep connection to African-American people, African-American culture, but I could never explain why. Mm. Growing up, there was this sense in me that I had this connection. I had lots, I, I, I fortunately grew up in a very, very diverse um, community in Waukegan, Illinois, north of Chicago. And my high school was extremely diverse. And I was, well, I thought I was. I didn't. I was one of only two white guys on my high school basketball team. Of course, I wasn't, but I didn't know that at the time, you know. And so there was this camaraderie and connection. And 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 so in that moment of I love you, son, all of that came to me, rushing back to me about my history, my present, and in some degree my future, you know, as to who I am now and, and how I can become, as I see it, a bridge. Wow. Talk about an, a, an entire identity shift. Um, and it doesn't sound as though this shift was one that was um, resisted by you. In fact, you, you embraced it. You ran toward it. You weren't like, I'm Black. Eh! You know, which, you know, a lot of my connections and guests have shared their own awakening stories of embracing the Black parts of them and what that has done for them in terms of being more connected and more inclusive and even embracing historically their ethnicity of African descent. So I am really curious for you, um, how has this impacted the way you have become more inclusive, if it made any difference, um, connected with other cultures, other Black cultures, um, African ancestry or heritage? Yes, yes. Well, as I said, um, 
again, I'd always felt this deep connection to African-American people, African-American culture growing up. And so it was, for me, it was like, um, it, well, in the, in the OJ trial, if it, if it was, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. For me, it was, it does fit. And so I'm guilty. Yes, I am. And so I just embraced that. After speaking with my father about two weeks later, I woke up at, I don't know, six in the morning to the phone ringing. And it was my grandmother calling me to wake me up and to welcome me back to the family, so to speak. And I think, and saying, you know, we've been hoping you'd come back at some point. We just, you know, wished it had been 10 years ago or whatever, but good to have you back. My grandfather was still alive. I went to Virginia Beach, they live in Virginia Beach, and I went to meet them. And we just, it was just this warm, embracing, wonderful hug from my family. And I have to say, in, in some degrees, this is, I think, what is so beautiful about the Black community to me, is my family and um, subsequent members of that family, adjacent and whatnot, have all been like, come on in, baby, you want us. Whereas in my white family, it's been a little bit more like, do you have to talk about that? And this is, I mean, it's a bit of a generalization, but this does speak to how Black families are so embracing of all colors, of all people who are part of the community, a part of the family. Whereas in white families, it's much more difficult to talk about race when it's been inter interjected into the family dynamic. And so mm. um, the good news is on this front is that my white family has come around and we've had conversations about race that we never had growing up. But I also was blessed by being raised by a woman, my mother, who was very accepting of all races, of all colors. I mean, she brought us up kind of under the pretext of judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not to deny the color of their skin, because therefore acting as colorblind, as we sometimes hear, is, is a denial of what's in front of you and an insult for that matter, but to accept people based on the content of their character. And she brought us up understanding that that was the important thing to do. And so I was really blessed to have that in combination with this wonderfully loving and deep historical Black family. Mm -hmm. You said a lot here that really has me thinking in many different directions. And I love the fact that you talk about not denying what is in front of you, but really acknowledging and embracing based yeah. on the character of who you are. But before we can even get to that character conversation, acknowledging the difficult conversations that you've mentioned you know, in your white families. And I, I read about how even after your play, sometimes your white audiences would feel like, oh, why aren't you even more outraged yes. <laughs> at this? So I want to dive a little bit deeper into this specific aspect because it is a difficult conversation for many people to have. It feels uncomfortable. It's like, where do I start? How do I even begin? You mentioned that you were able to find out about your great-grandmother, your great-great-grandmother. You know, you, you've even traced your history back through slavery, something that a lot of people haven't been able to do for some reason or another, or they are able to do it, and they aren't really met with uh, great accolades or um, 
prestigious or welcoming positions in their past. In fact, it's the contrary. They may go into their research and find out that, well, their families weren't really doing the right things. They were committing atrocities. And this brings a whole lot of shame around their identity. You are a diversity and inclusion engagement leader. So keeping this in mind, how would you begin to advise someone who in today's time has a history or a lineage that really isn't the best in terms of their past, but they are afraid and they are ashamed and they don't want to be pigeonholed into the atrocities of their their heritage or their lineage? Yeah, this is complicated and um, difficult for people to accept. I remember thinking about, it makes me think about, uh, who was it, Ben Affleck, who discovered on uh, Henry Louis Gates's show that he had uh, slaveholders in his family, and then they, somehow he got them to squash the episode from being aired, and then Gates got in trouble, and it became a whole thing. You know, it's interesting, we... We require our high school students to study American history. It's a requirement. You, everyone has to study it. And yet, how many of these students actually know about their own histories? I would venture to bet not many. And yet, we're asking them to study American history. Well, they have an American history. Their family has a history in this country. And that history is the foundation on which they stand, on which we all stand. And so I say, especially to young people, because I've done lots of presentations at high schools and colleges, learn more about your history. That is your foundation. That is what you stand on. And that your, your family played a role in the broader American history. Now, for some, as you mentioned, it may not be one that you want to highlight or one that you're proud of or whatever, but I say this to that. There has been studies done, some very extensive studies that share one of the most important things you can do for a family, for a group of people, for a team, for a a military operation, is to share your family's narrative, your personal narrative. By giving your family members, by telling your family members your family narrative, it helps people build better self-esteem, more self-confidence, all of these wonderful attributes that can lift them as they're walking through life. Now, one of the best scenarios in the family narrative is to share the obstacles and troubles that your family has been able to overcome. And it's by those obstacles and uh, troubles and overcoming those that give us even a greater sense of self-awareness, of self-confidence. For instance, right now, we're having this debate, maybe we're not all of us are having this debate, but many school districts across the country are being bombarded by parents and family members who are outraged by the teaching of CRT, critical race theory, or actually it's much broader than that because no one actually knows what CRT is, at least the people talking about it don't know what they're talking about, but it's played itself out and we need to um, alter the way we're teaching slavery or black history in our schools because it's, it's how can it be racist or whatever they, they're calling it. And what they're complaining about is it's making their white family members, their white children, students feel uncomfortable. Yes. Wow. Really? Guess what though? making them feel uncomfortable 
actually helps them. It helps build self-esteem because we overcame slavery. We have overcome many of these obstacles put in our path, and we continue to do so. But by shielding your student, your child from that, you are doing them a disservice. Wow. That is how I would talk to someone who is exploring their history and not always um, feeling so great about it, I guess. I, I like that. I like that you said that because these activities, especially the family narrative and highlighting the things that your family has overcome as a way to lift the emotions, lift the self-esteem, because a lot of our disagreements and conflicts come out of those low self-esteem and low confidence feelings. Right. You know, we try to fill the void, fill the gap. You know, it plays out in the workplace. It plays out in so many other areas, not realizing that you can go deeper into self-awareness, into emotional intelligence, simply by starting with your family narrative. So you talk a bit about, you know, having this information start in school. So I'm going to challenge this a little bit, because when you learned about your father, you were in your thirties, right? And I heard you say at some point, you know, you found out at a time when you could digest it, you (laughs) could appreciate it. You could appreciate the knowledge and the awareness. So do you think you know, that there is a time when this type of information or a content should be introduced, when is too soon? What, what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, there isn't, uh, there isn't one way to go about it. I say this often, there, there's not one way to have a conversation about race. If there was one way to have a conversation about race, oh my gosh, we'd all be doing, that would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? If it was A plus B equals C, we'd all do it. That would make it easier, but there isn't one way. We, we all have different experiences and we bring those different experiences to the table and that makes it messy and uncomfortable sometimes, but that's why there isn't one way to do it. If I had been told this information when I was younger, I might not be talking with you today. That's just a fact, perhaps. You know, I, it, it wouldn't have, my life wouldn't have evolved in the way that it had. I, I sometimes feel that it was, well, I feel very blessed. I feel very blessed and honored to, to be in this position to carry this message. But again, if I had been told, I don't know, even a couple of years before when I was told, I might not be talking with you or doing what I'm doing today. And so it's a different journey for everyone. And I can't, I can't, I wish I could give, you know, your listeners or anyone in the same position, the exact right thing to do. Um, The right thing to do is obviously to talk and to have conversations, but as to when those happen, I don't know that there's a, a one box fits all, a be all and end all for everyone. I love that very much because, and you gave us the solution, you know, one, there is no one way to talk about race. This is a difficult conversation. It's something that there's no one linear singular path. And I think for our audience, it's also affirming because they don't have to feel as though, oh, I've missed my opportunity. It's too late. I can't bring this conversation up or I can't start from this point because I've missed my window or I haven't you know, figured out the first three steps and I'm starting at step four. You are giving um, all of us permission to embrace the conversation at any age, at any stage, from any point in the story or the experience. And I know that that's the message that I want a lot of uh, my listeners 
to take away from this. This podcast is about diversity and inclusion among Black cultures, and you have brought us such a rich and rewarding perspective in embracing your your Black identity. Because a lot of times, my guests have the opposite experience. They're not embracing it. They go through an awakening experience, and that helps them to embrace all aspects of who they are, which in turn fuels their purpose, and they use that to teach others much like what you are doing today. Um, Before we begin to close, I want to ask, is there anything that you'd like to share that I have not asked? Well, I guess along the same lines, I'm going to offer you and your listeners tools, some tools to help have more meaningful, authentic conversations around race and identity. And that one that I just, we just spoke about is recognizing there's not one way to have that conversation. That's, that's one of the tools. The first tool that I'll offer is, um, is pretty obvious. (laughs) Tell your story, (laughs) open up and share your personal story. You know, this is a a thing that's called um, intergroup contact theory, which was um, put forth by a a Harvard uh, psychologist Intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have a lot more in common than we have different. And so tell your story is the first tool. Number two is don't judge the differences. Instead of allowing the differences to create a wall between us, start by finding a mutual interest and then embrace the differences. After all, if we were all the same, (laughs) we'd be bored. It's, it's the differences that make us stand out as people, and it's the differences that make us unique in the marketplace. Um, number three, as I mentioned, was recognize there isn't one way to have a conversation. Number four, which you've probably heard and your listeners have heard before, is we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. Mm. And I think, I can't take credit for that. I think I actually heard um, President Obama mentioned that at one point during his presidency. And I think it's a beautiful thing to think about. We are in a very disagreeable place right now in our country, collectively. We all look at things differently. We have different ideologies, different thoughts, different beliefs. But once we become disagreeable, conversation's over. It's done. We've created a wall. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Number five, you probably heard this too, is get comfortable being uncomfortable. I know it sounds crazy, but it is something that we do need to do. We do it every day and don't recognize it, whether it's with our spouse, with our kids, with our work, whatever. We have an uncomfortable moment. We work through it. We can do the same with this conversation. Number six, so important, understand that there are realities outside of your own experience. Just because you may not have experienced racism or sexism or homophobia or age discrimination or disability indifference doesn't mean that those aren't realities for other people. So listen with empathy. And the the final tool that I would leave with people is practice forgiveness. It has been described as the hardest work you will ever do, but also the most rewarding. Wow. Those are some incredible insights. Everyone that is listening, make sure that you listen to this twice, share it with a friend, take notes, download the worksheet, have a small group discussion, um, and begin to have those conversations. I also want to point out a lot of you want to build up your self-esteem. You have been given a fast track. You know, we live in a microwavable 
society, guess what? You want to fast track your self-esteem development? Begin to tell your family story. Look at your family narrative. Look at the obstacles and the troubles that you have overcome. Do not deny what is in front of you. Open, embrace, and accept people because of their character, not because of the color of their skin. And if all else fails, if all else fails, go look up the Alabama Gospel (laughs) Choir (laughs) and play some music to soothe your soul. Yes. Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time here today. And for all of the listeners, until next time, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit clairecommunicationsolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at clearcommunicationcoach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.